The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So for this part, um, I'd like to hear some things from you and um, maybe some questions. And we'll use the mics for this. So I put the mics out in the room. There's one right next to Ying there. And there's one on the stage in front of Kumi. And so we'll just pass the mics from hand to hand um, to, to uh, have it move around the room. So anybody have any description or notice anything that they are, feel comfortable sharing with the, with the group? Either of the walking or the sitting. And to turn it on, there's a button on the side. There'll be a little light that comes on. So um, I noticed that I think in the sitting meditation you talked about when we drift off to thinking and completely getting lost, coming back often for me has been a judgment. But you mentioned about maybe dropping back into that feeling tone of what it was when I was daydreaming. Was it pleasant? Was it unpleasant? And I fell aside of relief, like, oh, my God, I don't have to judge myself. What a relief. I have an option. And so it was a really nice way to come back from daydreaming and realizing that I can be with something else besides my own judgment. Yes. And so that was really pleasant. Surprise, I would say. Um, Second thing, when I was doing my walking meditation, I think so often I realize there's this sense of like once I start to focus on whether it's looking or really listening intensely to a sound, the thing was the judgment again, like, oh, do I like it? Do I not like it? If I like it, I want more of this. I even want that object, you know, that lemon that was hanging down that tree. Like, oh, my God, I like that plant. I really want that in my yard. (laughs) So there was all these self-references of... Do I like it? If I do, I want that to myself. But somehow I want more of that. Uh-huh. And that was pretty clear when I was doing... And what happened walking. as you noticed that? I mean, was there judgment then? Or was it just like, oh, Sometimes, wow, this is what the mind is doing? Sometimes there was judgment. I caught that. And often it's like, oh, there you go again. <laughs> Another one of these self-references. that uh-huh. I'm like, oh, do I want this? Do I not want this? Oh, no, this is not good for you. And, and this is so much of what goes on in our mind is this self-referencing, right? It's like, you are not alone in this. Anybody else notice these self-referencing thoughts? <laughs> yeah. So, so, yeah, I mean, it is, it is definitely, that's really useful to recognize that, that, you know, a lot of what our attention orients to, do, orients to immediately it's like, how, does it, how is it about me? You know, or or how does it relate to me? Or and so this is this is an important piece to recognize that. So so not to judge ourselves about it, but just to see how much of that goes on, and then um, you know also we begin to see that a lot of that is, you know, it's actually not that necessary at times, and uh, it's almost more of a habit at times that it does that. And there's a little bit of a you know piece around this self-referencing that. This is a subtle kind of thing uh, at times, but anytime there's a self-referencing like that, there's a little bit of tensing or tightening or um, there's, there's some suffering 
even if it's about something I want, you know, and then, oh, this will be good for me. You know, even that piece, there's a little bit of suffering in that. And we often don't notice it. It's like we just live our lives through this self-referencing and don't notice how the, how it is connected to fear or wanting or um, confusion. We don't, we don't notice that because it's just, we've lived our lives through that lens, that filter. And so as we start to be aware of how much self-referencing there is, uh, our minds begin to understand that a lot of it isn't necessary. I mean, there are times when we need to recognize and understand these are my thoughts, they're not that person's thoughts. You know, so there are times when we really need to understand that this stream that's happening is a coherent stream. It's not, it's not like, you know, it's, it's not that there's no um, continuity or flow of a being but what we take to be that I is not what we think it is. And so often our, our, our views or how we're relating to things is, is through that view of self. And so it's a really useful thing to begin to recognize. And our minds will begin to understand what parts of that are useful, because there's some parts of the recognizing, yes, this stream is different from this stream, <laughs> that that's useful. But so much of it is extra and actually creates a tension or a suffering. And so the, the, the mind is starting to see that. So that's great. And then another piece I'll, I'll point to is, um, uh, you mentioned about daydreaming and coming back from the daydreaming and kind of taking that in. So when you notice that, what was the experience when you noticed, oh, what's the flavor of the mind having been daydreaming? What was the flavor there? What was that like? I think it depends on the context of what I was daydreaming about. If it's something pleasant, usually there's a sense of, oh, yeah, that was good. Uh-huh. I like that. Uh-huh. Um, so, um, but if it's something that I don't really like, then the judgment is like, oh, there you go again. And, you know, why are you uh-huh. making yourself suffer so much? Yeah. So, so there's the, the, again, so this is an important piece that in the recognizing from the return from thinking, there's a wide variety of experiences that can be there. You know, if we've been thinking about an argument that we were having with a partner, you know, likely there's going to be some of the flavor of that, um, the feelings that were connected to that in the mind as it returns from the thinking. Um, But there's also the possibility that the mind was more just drifting, just kind of lost track of the present moment, almost daydreamy, just like random thoughts. And maybe there's not much emotional, emotional content there, but there might be a kind of a, the state of that daydreaming had felt good. You know, because often our minds will go into a daydreamy state and there's a kind of a pleasantness in that that we're not aware of when we're lost, when we're, you know, when we're in that daydream and not aware of it. But when we come back, there might be a flavor of that kind of, that kind of floaty quality or that kind of pleasant quality of, of what it was like to be daydreaming still there that can be pleasant and so sometimes actually I see even from that place um, like coming back from a daydreamy kind of place sometimes as I connect with well oh yeah the mind was daydreaming oh I'm present now and how am I now well actually I'm more relaxed than I was before and that has been a surprise to me in returning from wandering off that sometimes it's not that the mind goes off into greed, aversion, delusion. It actually goes off into relaxation or calm. 
And just, it's just that the mind hadn't actually been aware of what it was doing. Because sometimes our mind will go off into wholesome things. And so in, if we're judging ourselves immediately about the, the daydreaming when we get back, we lose, the touch, we lose touch with that possibility of seeing, oh, actually there's more relaxation here. And so sometimes when we come back from a thought like that, we can actually find ourselves more relaxed or more present in a way as the mindfulness returns than we were before. And so that's an important piece in that letting go of the judgment too because if we're judging, we miss that piece entirely. The judging will bring in some tension and just obliterate any, any relaxation that has happened there. And what I've seen too, the more that I, I've practiced, is that way more often than I would have thought actually, the mind in the wandering is more actually relaxing it's almost as if the mind is saying, hey, you know, you're working too hard. You are getting all wrapped up. I'll show you how to relax. And it just takes me out. And then when I come back, it's like, oh, yeah, that's relaxation. So, uh, so to not, you know, to, again, the, lack, the, the not judging there, because sometimes our mind is actually almost trying to help us in a way. So there's that piece. And then sometimes I've seen the mind wandering off into thoughts about, friends or you know it's kind of like it gets engaged in thoughts um one time on a retreat i found myself repeatedly thinking thoughts about these friends from the peace corps and initially it was kind of like oh thinking and then coming back but i wasn't really connecting to the feeling that was there in the thinking and those thoughts just kept returning and uh, at some point i got more curious about well what is that you know what's the feeling what is the feeling that's being evoked with these thoughts? It's like, how is it when I'm thinking about my friends from the Peace Corps? And there was immediately a feeling of love and connection that was there that I hadn't really consciously noticed. And so when I noticed that, it was like the metta just grew. It was almost like the mind was like kind of curious or interested in the metta, and I wasn't noticing that. And then as the mind began to recognize that, uh, that feeling of the metta that was connected with those thoughts, the mind stopped wandering into thoughts about it. It just stayed with the feeling of that connectedness and care about my friends. And so, you know, there's not... We, we think, I think, sometimes we think, okay, I'm sitting down to meditate. Whenever the mind wanders, it means the mind is up to no good. In my experience, I've seen that's definitely not always the case. And so, you know, looking at what's here, Sometimes it's up to no good, but sometimes it's actually beautiful things that are there. So I just wanted to highlight that piece around what you shared. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I have two questions. First question is, uh, in your morning uh, instructions or talks, uh, you said that uh, what it is like to be aware. So you said that quite often, and uh, I was just wondering if you can a little bit uh, elaborate that, like how does it feel to be aware? And uh, so, yeah, just... So, um, I think this is something that we have to find out for ourselves. 
um, you know, I, I can say a few things, which I said earlier, you know, sometimes it feels like the light goes on. Uh, it feels like a brightening in the mind. It feels like a knowing of where I am. But all of those words just beg the question, what does that feel like? Um, and so, uh, it's, it, and there's many ways it does feel. That's the other piece that I found really um, important to recognize that sometimes... You know, sometimes we have a sense of what it's like to be aware. The first time we, we, we really get a taste of that, what it's like to be aware. It's like our mind goes, oh, check, that's what it feels like. And then we'd go looking for that feeling, go looking for that experience. And what I've noticed is that it feels different ways at different times. And so if we kind of orient around that, and, it, and it, it often does have a quality of, well, there's a, there can be a quality of um, um, kind of curiosity or delight in the awareness itself. And so often we kind of hook to that feeling, the pleasantness of that, and are, are, are orienting to trying to reproduce that experience in order to get back to that pleasantness. And so, um, and I have suffered so much trying to do that. <laughs> uh, you know, there are different ways, you know, sometimes, sometimes the awareness can feel more broad and receptive in this way. Sometimes it feels kind of jumpy that it's moving from experience to experience. Sometimes it feels flowy. Sometimes it feels like we're knowing the experience really clearly. Sometimes it more feels like we're aware more of what the mind is doing. Sometimes it's both. Sometimes we feel like we know that the mind is aware and what it's aware of at the same time. There's a lot of different ways it can feel. And, you know, the, the, one of those flavors when I, when I stumbled into it, this sense of knowing the awareness and knowing the object at the same time, it was like looking through a lens and knowing what was being seen and understanding how the whole process worked. It was like, that is so cool. I was so excited and so like jazzed about that experience and I gave myself a massive headache trying to get back to it. So, you know, it's, and again, it's just one way of the feeling. And so um, what I want to encourage is your curiosity about it. So the question indicates there's some curiosity. So when you know that you're aware, how does it feel right now? And it may be that you don't exactly know how you know that you're aware. That's okay. Just that sense of, okay, well, I can't put into words what I think it feels like to be aware. But this feeling, just, yeah, what's this feeling like? What's this experience like of being aware? So in the, in the exploration of awareness, there's whatever we're aware of, a sight, a sound, a body sensation, uh, some object, a mood, an emotion, a thought. There's whatever it is that we're aware of. And then there's the, the mind that knows that. So there's two parts to the experience. And often, because it's more obvious, the experience, the object, the experience of sight or sound or body sensation is, is the more obvious part of that equation. We don't really uh, know or recognize the quality of the awareness itself. And, and we may not even think it's interesting or useful until somebody says, hey, this is an interesting thing to, p- to pay attention to. And so, you know, the mind will naturally orient to what it's most familiar with, which is the object. 
And so it can take a little bit of time to kind of step back and say, okay, yeah, I know the object, but how about the awareness part? What's that like? And it's not, so in this investigation, it's not about trying to figure it out. It's more about landing in the feeling of it, being with the experience of, I know that I'm aware. And actually, I like that phrase, being with, for investigation, more than I like the word investigation. Because the word investigation often implies some kind of thinking about or figuring out or trying to analyze. And being with is kind of more like, okay, here I am in this space, and what's this like? It's more like being a naturalist when a naturalist goes into the world and uh, wants to see what's going on in the world. They don't necessarily, I mean, they, they attend to things, but they don't try to pull things apart. It's more like, okay, what's this nature doing? And it's a kind of a repeated observation over time where a naturalist learns things. And likewise for us, it's a repeated knowing, oh, this is what awareness is like. Oh, and this is a, well, this one feels a little different. This is a different flavor. So just a repeated kind of curiosity about what is that like? And not trying to, it's, it's more, again, it's more of a being with than trying to figure out. So, it, yeah, it really is something that we, we have to have some curiosity about and to have patience with it revealing itself to us. You know, sometimes I think of awareness almost as being like a really shy creature. You know, if we're trying to look at it directly, it's like, well, what's that awareness? It's like it's going to vanish. It's going to go away. And so it's almost more like we have to like, you know, kind of look at it from the side. It's like, oh, aware, okay, yeah. Yeah, I know I'm aware. Not try to like turn around and look at it, but more just like looking at it like, oh, yeah, I'll be here and, I'm, you, you know, see if I can not have you dive into the hole again like a, a shy creature would do when they know somebody is watching them. So it's that flavor of, of looking at. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. My second question was uh, both in sitting and walking, as you mentioned, that having a relaxed body is very important. And that is important, I felt that. So sometimes there is like a strong pain in body, like a very unbearable kind of sensation. And uh, so I was just curious how to like be relaxed with that kind of pain so that we can uh, experience that open awareness. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, this question about certain kinds of experiences almost creating tension. So, yeah, when there's a strong pain, it's almost like automatically our body will go into a tension around it. So there are times when we can't really relax. And there we mostly have to... What, what I would encourage there is a recognition of, oh, yeah, there's a pain in the body and there's tension around it and see if the mind can know the tension with some measure of ease. So sometimes we, that's, that's what we can do is recognize, oh, there's tension. We can't relax it. There may be in the seeing of the tension that's associated with physical pain. Over time, I've seen the, there's more capacity for that than I would have expected. Um, um, just a kind of a, the recognition of how the mind is kind of, it's not just a physical thing, it's a mental thing, the mind kind of holding around the pain. It's a little bit of aversion 
that's connected with the pain that's creating that tension or sometimes a lot of aversion that's connected with the pain that's creating that tension. And that aversion can be very, very deep. Like, it's, it's, it's part of our, um, almost our biological processes. But it is not um, necessary. It's, we've learned how to do that. This system, our physical system, um, anytime there's a kind of the resistance like that, it is mediated through the mind. And so there's a possibility of um, knowing that. And sometimes in the knowing of it, there can be a softening or releasing. So, um, so being aware of the tension and not, not trying to hold to, yes, it is true that relaxation of body supports a relaxed mind. And that supports the mindfulness, the open awareness. But there can be, it's almost like there can be, it can be that there's the understanding, oh, there's tension around this pain. And then the mind can be relaxed around the tension, around the pain. So we don't have to think that the entirety of our system has to be relaxed in order to have a part of the mind being relaxed to be aware. And that's what I've discovered is possible, but again, it's a kind of an exploration of knowing the tension and at first, you know, really like, oh yeah, this is tension. And it feeling just like the entire system is wrapped up in that tension. But yeah, I can know this. Yeah, I, I can be aware of this. And, and, and in some part of my mind, not be averse to the aversion. Not be averse to the tension. Not be averse to the resistance. And so that, that's, that's the direction that this can head. What I would say is if in this process of exploring this and, and just starting, so there's a pain in the body and noticing there's tension, you know, there's the, okay, so, yep, can I be aware of that tension? And you might, at, at, in that kind of curiosity, and often with the pain in the body, the, the attention just goes there. It gets pulled to that experience. And so it's almost like, well, that is what's obvious. And then the tension builds around that. And if we can be aware of the tension, sometimes, sometimes the mind can relax a little bit. It's like, well, of course there's tension around this pain. And so the mind can relax a little bit. Sometimes it's strong enough that the mind can't relax. And uh, there's certain points in the practice where um, what, if whatever the mind is kind of oriented to, if, if like... The mind is like, we, we start with what is naturally obvious, what is coming to us. And if what is coming to us is pain and a reactivity to that pain, and we are just getting ourselves tied in knots, it's getting harder and harder to be mindful, we're getting angrier and angrier, then we need to take some action. We need to actually choose, if possible, to not pay attention to that object for right now. Uh, because it is not an object, it's not an experience where the mind can be balanced enough to look at it. In effect, there are times, there are times with something that's strong enough where it feels almost overwhelming to us, that if we're trying to be aware of that thing, that um, it just kind of amps up our reactivity to it. And so the attempt to be mindful of something like that actually hooks us into our habits of reactivity rather than helping us to decouple from them, 
helping us to disengage from them. And so this is a piece of, of learning, of wisdom that's important for us, especially in this uh, more open style of practice, to be aware. When is it possible to be aware of what's obvious naturally here in the mind? With some measure of balance. And when is it not? When is the mind getting too wrapped up? And if it is too wrapped up, if it does feel like the, uh, the mind is getting pulled further and further into reactivity, then that's time to, I sometimes say, change the channel. Shift the attention to some other experience. See if you can consciously pull the attention out of that sensation that's creating the conditions for that reactivity to build. So this is a skillful means for us. So it's not always the case that we simply sit back and say, oh yeah, receive, receive, receive. Because there are times when what is received is something that is so powerful, there's so much conditioning and habits associated with, that our mindfulness isn't strong enough to meet that. And so we need to choose something else choose some other experience. Sometimes we might be able to do that relatively easily, kind of by recognizing or reflecting, oh yeah, that's pretty strong right now. Let me put my attention over here. So I did that a lot with um, the state of mind of anger earlier in my practice. There was a particular person I was angry with, and when that person came up into my mind, trying to be mindful of the anger and that whole situation just pulled me right back into the anger. It was relatively easy for me to recognize that kind of pattern. Oh yeah, getting hooked to that anger again. And most of the time in my situation when this was happening, I was walking. And so I just consciously directed my attention to something neutral, the sensation of my feet on the ground. It was pretty easy to do that. I was able to kind of just let the... It wasn't a repressing or a pushing away of what was happening. And that's an important part about this changing the channel or redirecting. It, it, it's helpful if it's not... Um, it's most helpful if it's not a repression but more so like the, the way I related to this in that moment was like, okay, yeah, I see you, this anger, I see you. And yeah, you can take a walk with me, but I'm going to put my attention on my feet right now. So it was, a, it was a shift of the attention to my feet. So that was relatively easy for me to do in that situation. And there, at times, it, it, it can be relatively easy. Just the recognition of, yeah, this is not the time to be mindful of that helps us and we can just step aside from it. Pick something. I often find not picking something in this part of the body when we're in a strong reactivity. If there's a strong reactivity going on, it's often manifesting or expressing as tension in this core area of the body. And so the breath is often not a helpful object to turn to when there's a lot of reactivity because the breath will be involved in that emotion. And so... Some people can turn to the breath, um, but it's often useful to have something kind of outside of this core area where you can ground or land, like contact of your hips on the chair or cushion or bench or feet on the ground or sensations of hands. Sayadaw would say he would do this. He would put his fingers together like this and feel the pressure of his fingers and even like orient to thumbs pressing together, first fingers pressing together. Just give himself some really clear, obvious sensation to help him take his attention out of whatever was so challenging. There's another one that's, um, that I find really helpful, and I'll, I'll teach it to you right now. It is, I think, one of the um, 
uh, broadest, one of the broadest, most broadly helpful um, tools that I know of when there's uh, reactivity happening. And it uses the visual field to help you orient and uh, take your attention out of something that's so strong. So what's happening when the attention is pulled to something that's difficult or painful, it's like it's magnetized. You know, it's almost like we've paid attention to it so much and our mind says, this is important to pay attention to. So it's really hard not to pay attention to something. And if we, if it's, it's, if it's a really strong magnet, if we just try to say, okay, I'm going to put the attention over here, it's like the strength of that magnet if we try to put our attention over here and just hold it here, it's like the strength of our capacity to stay with that object and the strength of the magnet are imbalanced. And it's going to go right back to the magnet. And so we, um, we have to find something that will let us kind of attend to something. We can attend to something for a second. Just a second. Usually we can redirect out of something painful for a second and then consciously pick something else and something else and something else. And so we do, a way to do that is with the visual field. And in a room like this, the easiest thing that I know to connect with is any place where there's a corner, any place where two lines come together. So it might be the corner of the window there or the, the corner of the, the sound um, padding on the... the um, the wall or the corner of the exit sign or the place where a chair hits the carpet, any place where there's a corner. And uh, so what we'll do right now is we'll just play with this for 20, 30 seconds. So um, find a corner and look at it just for a second. And it's like you don't have to do any deep like anything about it. Just like know it's a corner and then switch to another one and switch to another one and switch to another one. So connect to a corner and switch. And it's also helpful to move the head here. So another corner, switch. Corner, switch. Corner. So we'll do this for like 30 seconds. So how does that affect you doing that? Just a couple of couple of reports. You can call them out and I'll just yeah, just a word or two and I'll I'll just say them, repeat them. Anyone? How did that affect you? Yeah. It takes your attention out. It takes your attention out. Uh-huh. It freezes the attention. It freezes the attention? Oh, freeze the attention. Okay. Mm-hmm. Anybody else? Feels like a reset. Anyone else? It relaxed the eyes. Yeah, uh-huh. can relax the eyes. Uh-huh. So this tool kind of uses the capacity of our visual. The visual field is pretty strong for us, and we do have the capacity to focus on something for just a moment. And then we pick something else. So all we have to remember is to do this, not get stuck on any one uh, corner and keep shifting, 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 shifting. That essentially takes the mind out of what it had been stuck to 
and allows it to do this reset, essentially. You know, it, it, it's exactly like that. It's, it's like the, just even 30 seconds can be very powerful. One, um, one um, neurobiologist, um, maybe some of you have heard of her, Jill Bolte-Taylor, she wrote this wonderful book called My Stroke of Insight. She um, noticed or recognized that when her recovery was happening, she'd had a stroke, and when her recovery was happening, she'd find her mind get kind of stuck into a pattern or a habit. And, and she said she knew, based on the way the neurobiology worked, that if she could get her attention out of that pattern, out of the kind of the mind looping in that pattern, if she could get her attention out of that pattern for 90 seconds, nine zero seconds, a minute and a half, that the uh, chemical kind of component of that reactivity would wash through the system. And that's kind of like what happens for us when we keep getting stuck in it. It's like there's a button in there that's producing a, a kind of... Um, um, a flush of hormones through our system in that reactivity. And every time we kind of pick up that thought, it's like we're pushing the button again and again. But if we can keep from pushing that button for 90 seconds, it often will really settle. And so if you can do this for 90 seconds, if you're really reactive, I think you'll find that there's a pretty good measure of reset that can happen. And I find too, just even like just now when we did this, I wasn't particularly tense or anything, but even as I did it for 30 seconds, there was something, you know, with the relaxation of the face, there was a relaxation internally, an extra relaxation internally of tension being held that I didn't notice that was being relaxed. And so even, even just if there's, you know, if you're, if you're kind of caught in a, in a stream of thought, it's like, oh, you can just do this for a few, a few seconds and may find your mind kind of relaxing again. Yeah. And, and could you use the mic again? So does that relate to conditioning? Uh, the, the does which relate to conditioning? The, uh, before doing, uh, before... When we get stuck. Oh, the stuckness is related to conditioning, yes. So, so, so that's, it's kind of like that stuckness is, is, a, is a groove that's well-worn. Often it's like, yeah, I've done that one a lot. <laughs> so it's, it, the, the Buddha had a phrase, whatever we th- frequently ponder becomes the inclination of the mind. And that is through conditioning that we frequently ponder something. And so that becomes the inclination of the mind. So it is, it's habit, it's conditioning that tends to make us stuck to something. So it could free temporarily yes. by doing the... Yes, it's not, a, it's not a permanent freeing from that pattern, but it gives you a break enough potentially to be able to, oh, that's what was going on. Oh, maybe I can hold that. Or maybe not. Maybe, like with my walking part, when I was angry and, and putting, directing my attention away from it, I basically just kept my attention out of it. And that anger of that moment was well-conditioned. It was well-greased. It, it, it went away through the not attending to it. And then, you know, I knew it wasn't helpful. I didn't actually need to go back and say, okay, let me think about it again and see why am I angry about that. I didn't need to go back to that. It would come up again, and then I would do the same thing again. And that process over the course of quite a while, might have even been a couple of years that I did that with that particular anger, that process 
slowly allowed the mind to just not find that pattern interesting anymore. And it just kind of fell away. I never actually, not never, but with that particular pattern around that particular person, that particular scenario, that particular anger, I didn't actually have to go and look at it, investigate it. It was like the mind realized at some point, oh yeah, this is, this is extra, this is not important, this can be released, it can be, this can be let go by redirecting the attention. So sometimes the redirecting of the attention can allow something to release. And in that case, you know, that pattern went away and I never know, knew when it went away. I n- noticed that it was gone in retrospect. At some point I recognized, wow, that hasn't come up very much lately. And I couldn't even call it up in that moment. And it has never come back since then. So it was gone through this redirecting. And so sometimes that's another piece that I like to point to that, you know, sometimes we might think that in order to have a pattern of conditioning shift, we really have to put it under the microscope, look at it, understand it, see it. And sometimes what it takes is just, yeah, there's that pattern. Okay, I'll put my attention over here. Sometimes it can release kind of behind the scenes. So um, let's do another sitting just to, for, before we move into the lunch period. About It'll be short, about 17 minutes or 15 minutes. We'll do about 15 minutes. <laughs> 